eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome in to the Yachts and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem. Eric Scopel is with me as always. And if you're listening to this podcast, uh, you know that we work for 24-7 Sports. And if you are a VIP member, you know uh, a lot of stuff before a lot of your friends do. But if you're not a VIP member, jump in now one month for $1, $9.95 after that first month. All it does is uh, it costs you $1 to get into uh, Duck Territory's VIP membership community. Inside scoop, expert analysis, read all the content across the 24-7 Sports Network. Uh, you get exclusive recruiting coverage, team coverage, uh, men's, women's basketball, football, more. Plus, once that first month of promo price goes up, uh, and you're now paying the full price of 9.95, uh, you're like, oh dang, I'm I'm spending more money now. Oh well, then we throw in the fact that you get CBS All Access for free, which comes at a nine dollars ninety nine cent value. So essentially, you're saving a hundred dollars, you know, almost a hundred and twenty dollars a year. Uh, because you get CBS All Access for free by subscribing to DuckTerritory.com. So jump in now if you haven't. There's a ton of news going on. And look, uh, Eric, we were talking last week on this show that we were going to do Monday was going to be the uh, podcast where we went down the Oregon football schedule. Um, we will talk Oregon football schedule for 2020 on this podcast, but we wanted to dedicate an entire show to the po- to the schedule and look, the reality is there's so much good stuff going on with Oregon sports right now that today's show kind of got scrapped at the very last minute because we knew of a commitment was coming down for football. We had basketball for the men's side have one hell of a performance Saturday in, in Montlake uh, up, up at Washington, and we needed to talk more in depth about those two things because uh, those were more relevant breaking news, and we wanted to give the football schedule its full attention of a full podcast. And again, instead of doing like an hour and a half, two-hour podcast, we're going to have to push the football one back a little bit. Uh, but we have plenty of news, including some stuff on the 2020 schedule. Um, but first, let's dive into this commitment for Oregon. Four-star offensive lineman Josh Simmons uh, out of Madison High School. That's the same high school as Samson New, a current player on the football team. He's a junior linebacker. He, uh, Josh Simmons, gave a verbal commitment to the Ducks, uh, and he is now the sixth verbal commitment of the class, uh, uh, yeah, a class of 2021 for the Oregon Ducks. Uh, and you look at it and it's like Oregon once again, first in the Pac-12, and they're, cl- they're one spot behind uh, a top five ranking in the 2021 class. It, it is a 
really strong group of, and it's only, you said, like you said, six players, but it's five of them are top 250 recruits right now. Um, and I really like Josh Simmons. I went through and, and ran through his highlights. There's some stuff on the side. I put up a film review. Um, he's a, he fits the mold of what Mario Cristobal has been looking for on the offensive line. He's really big at 6'5", 325. He's very athletic and he plays mean. And I think those are the kind of staples you see from players that Cristobal has recruited on the offensive line and Simmons fits it to a T. Like I said, big guy, moves very, very well, plays nasty. A lot of his highlights are him 10 year, you know, 10 yards downfield, basically moving a guy like a tap, you know, tackling sled and then just falling on them and letting the running back run by for a long run. So, um, a lot to like from him. Um, I like the fact that he's currently playing left guard in high school at, like you said, at Madison. Um, we've seen, even a guy like Penny Sewell played a little bit inside in high school. They moved him outside. Um, we see a lot of success Oregon has had with guys that were interior linemen in high school, um, you know, at this next level. We've also seen recently a lot of guys that have played on the tackle, you know, at the tackle position on the, in high school and have to move inside. I think Simmons is a guy that fits, um, you know, inside as a guard. And the fact that he's playing there in high school probably makes it a little easier for him to, to transition to Oregon when he gets there in a couple of years. Um, but again, I, I think the physical tools are there, um, and you watch him, and he, there's even a little bit on his tape of him playing defensive tackle, and just the way he moves in those situations is really impressive for somebody who, like we said, is a really, really big person. So um, it fits, again, kind of you take the checklist of what Cristobal seems to look for at this position. Simmons checks all the marks, and again, another really highly regarded kid out west, and you look at what Oregon has done in this class, and for as much as we want to talk about Oregon as a national brand recruiting, uh, a lot of it's taken place in Southern California, again, with Seven McGee, Anthony Beavers, uh, Chiron Ware-Hudson, and now Josh Simmons. Those are some of the top players in the state of California. In fact, those are four of the top 25 players in the state in this class that have already committed to Oregon. So kudos to the staff for, for finding a kid that they like a lot, who fits their kind of what they're looking for, but is also somebody in the West Coast that now they can go out and say, hey, to all these other top kids from from the West, and we should mention they already have Keith Brown, the top player player in the state of Oregon, committed. That um, they've done a very very nice job out West already, and I think you're going to continue to see that roll over because, like we've seen in previous classes, there is sort of a domino effect where these top kids want to play together. Yeah, look, and and it could get even better for Oregon because they are a major player for Corey Foreman, who's the number one player in the state of California, but also the number one player in the country. Uh, strong side defensive end from Corona, California, Centennial High School. Um, Troy Franklin out of Menlo Atherin uh, High School in Menlo Park, California. He is also very high on Oregon. He is the fourth best player in the, ca- in the state of California, a five-star receiver, the 23rd best player in the country. Bo Collins from St. John Bosco High School, wide receiver. He's got an offer from Oregon. He's interested in the Ducks. Uh, you go down the list. Christian Dixon, another four-star receiver interested in Oregon. Jo- uh, Jonathan Flo, Justin Flo's younger brother from the 2020 class. He's the 13th best player in the, in the state of California. He's got high interest in Oregon. Tight end Jermaine Terry. I mean, you just go down the list yeah. and, you know, there are a lot of prospects that are commit, that are either interested or committed that are, you know, considered the top 26, 25 players. In the state of California, the Cali flock, you know, Cristobal has talked about this at length that, that, you know, California will always be home to this Oregon football program and the importance of that state and being able to go in and, and getting the best players. Uh, that's showing up again in 2021 early on. And yes, it's a long ways to go. You have to understand that. And, you know, but today's day and age of recruiting, look, 
you have to recruit on two fronts. You have to be able to go out and dominate in the 2020 class and at the same time start building yourself up for the 2021 class because if you don't, you get left behind because like it or not, the players themselves are deciding earlier and earlier and Oregon is adapted to this under Mario Cristobal and they've been aggressive not only in 2020, but they've been aggressive in, in recruiting the 2021 class. And like you said, they've got the state of Oregon's best player in Keith Brown, who's a four-star inside linebacker. Uh, and they've got four of the top 26 players in the state of California already verbally committed uh, to Oregon. And then on top of that, They've got one of the best players in Utah committed to Oregon. And Jackson Light, he's a center. He's a three-star prospect. And typically centers, they're not really rated as high as other players. You, you may find you know, one or two five-star guys, one or two four-star guys that play the center position, and everyone else is three-stars for whatever reason. Um, but Jackson Light is one of he's the seventh-best center in the country. Um, the 2021 class is off to a roaring start. And I think, Eric... I wrote about this on the site real quick. I don't want to give too much of it away, but we are seeing a theme develop where the elite West Coast player that's an offensive lineman, more often than not now, they're starting to, to, to go to Oregon. And it, it makes a ton of sense, too. I mean, you, you just look at who the head coach of Oregon is, and, and this is almost an overthought and overstated cliche at this point, but Mario Cristobal is an offensive line coach first and foremost, and He's going to have a ton of success. I think, you know, I know we've seen it throughout his tenure at Oregon recruiting um, offensive linemen just because they know, understand their notoriety. And, and, and look, the success has warranted that, too. I mean, you talk about the way he's he developed this this last group of, of seniors that, out, that are outgoing now that, that came in and were obviously talented players that were starters when he, you know, inherited that group. But the fact that all those guys have a chance to be draft picks and, and to have NFL careers and a guy like Penny Sewell who was – Definitely a highly rated recruit, one of the higher rated recruits that Oregon's ever signed as an offensive lineman. But to see him develop into the best offensive lineman in the country in two years, I think for anyone, that is a very exciting thing. And I think that allows, I mean, I think just the development of Sewell in its own right allows Cristobal to go into basically the living room of, of any offensive lineman in the country and say, hey, look what, look at this. Look what we were able to do in a couple of years to turn a guy who had a ton of upside and to fulfill that upside and turn him into the best offensive lineman in the country as voted by uh, the media and, and, and as, you know, the coaches and stuff. So uh, I think that's a humongous, humongous uh, coup for him, and you're starting to see that pay off not only now, but we've already seen it. But a guy like Simmons, I think that could be just kind of the tip of the iceberg in, in this 2021 class in terms of offensive linemen um, just because of the success Oregon has had. And we talked about it briefly also in a previous podcast of, these are the kids now in this 2021 class that have seen what Oregon did during the 2019 season. And yeah. I think that can pay dividends as well. Yeah, that that's usually recruiting takes like a year's time to kind of carry, you know, one year's success needs about a year into recruiting cycles. So if you are, if you have a huge year, you win the national championship or you win the Rose Bowl like Oregon did in 2019, you typically don't see a huge spike in 2020 recruiting. You see that in 2021 because most of the guys during the 2020 recruiting class, they've either either already jumped on board with Oregon or they've made their decisions elsewhere or they've cut, you know, top fives. And, and yeah, it, it could, it could maybe be the, the catalyst for a, a strong finish down the road, but a whole class's impact isn't going to be, isn't going to be, uh, carried or impacted by a Rose Bowl 
Now, the 2021 class will because, like you said, all those juniors, a lot of them haven't decided yet. And they watched all of the season play out, and they saw Oregon have the year that they had and then go out and win the Rose Bowl. Penny Sewell get the Outland Trophy and potentially four or five offensive linemen from Oregon's football team in 2019 get drafted in the 2020 NFL draft uh, in a couple months. So, yeah, I'm with you that we could be seeing uh, Oregon go, you know, even higher in recruiting because of how things played out during the 2020 or 2019 football season. Um, let's also dive into over the weekend we posted a site a story on DuckTerritory.com. I think you did, Eric, where we kind of went through um, the 2020 schedule from a trap game perspective and. Uh, we're going to talk more in depth about the 2020 schedule. Uh, we've decided we're, we're already scheduling in Friday's episode as a football one. And in, if something happens between Wednesday and Friday where we need to do a podcast, we'll have an emergency podcast. But if you're looking for the full scope of the schedule, our, our full thoughts and everything, Friday's show will be it. But we do have trap game discussion for 2020. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. We, all three of us, we did it with Kevin Wade on the site. Um, it's a VIP story. So again, there, there's a, if you have not subscribed to the, to duckterritory.com, there's another reason to, to go read our stories, um, like this one. But, uh, it was interesting because I think all three of us picked different games. I know all three of us picked different games and for a variety of different reasons. And it makes sense because you look at the way the schedule comes together and it's a very, I think it's a very challenging schedule. Um, and, and I think it's a schedule that, We'll have some games that you maybe on first glance you, you go like oh that's not the worst game on the schedule but you think about it in the context of what's going on and it becomes a scarier game and so for me um, I, I looked at the season and I kind of go like okay there are three conference games that I think Oregon is going to have circled based upon rivalries and just what happened this past year and I think it's the Washington game on October third the USC game on no- oh, sorry the Arizona State game on November thirteenth. And then the Oregon State game in the Civil War on the 28th. And those are three games that, based upon what happened last year, Arizona State being the lone loss, and then obviously rivalries with Washington, Oregon State, I think just players know are big games. But I kind of looked at the games around those games, and to me, the one that I think I would say maybe is the trap game is the game right before that Arizona State game. Um, and that's the game with USC on November 7th. Trojans are very talented. Um, they... Went seven and two in the Pac-12 this last season. They're, it, USC is an absolute mess right now, so it's kind of easy to make fun of what's going on down there. But they're a talented team, and they're going to come into Eugene uh, a week before Oregon is, is set to face Arizona State. And I'm going to say that those are probably going to be or, or should be the two favorites in the Pac-12 South, USC and Arizona State. And I just think that's a game against the Trojans where it could be easy to start looking ahead to Arizona State. It could be easy to start looking ahead to maybe Washington State and Oregon State the weeks after that. And um, I, I just look at that game and go, man, if Oregon is not ready, USC is talented, they're hungry, or they just lost to Oregon by 32 points on their home field last season. Um, that's one that I would keep an eye on, even though you look at the schedule and go like, well, USC is kind of a mess right now. Maybe they're kind of a joke at this point. But I just don't, don't think you can overlook that team based on the talent and based upon the fact that they're going to be highly motivated to get some revenge against Oregon because Oregon really put it on him down there last year uh, in the Coliseum. I was kind of surprised when we don't peel the the curtains back here a little bit. 
Um, Eric, Kevin, and I, when we do these roundtables, we don't really, like, flesh out our thoughts of who we're picking individually amongst the group and then submit uh, submit our answers. We we do this completely blind. So, you know, we don't want groupthink. We, you know, we're trying to, you know, create an idea of, you know, giving the, the reader a full scope of where our our heads are at. And I was surprised when um, I read the story and you had picked USC and Kevin had picked Washington um, because on the schedule at least, or at least on paper, those are two of, you know, every year the biggest games of the year. USC because that's the school that a lot of California kids on Oregon's roster grew up wanting to play for and, and – either didn't get offered or they want to remind USC that they should have gone harder after them or whatever. Um, Washington, because it's Oregon, Washington. So I was, I was kind of surprised that both of you guys picked, you know, perennial big games per se, historically as trap games. Um, I think that speaks maybe to the level that a USC is at um, right. because <laughs> they've fallen that far in our eyes. Uh, Washington for Kevin, um, it's an interesting take. I, I, I think Washington gets a bye week before they play Oregon in Eugene. Um, the Jimmy Lake factor, maybe Oregon's going to look up and, and say just, you know, Peterson's gone and, you know, Oregon's packed 12 champs and Washington has to replace a ton of guys on both sides of the ball. Um, but that one surprised me. But I went with Hawaii. Um, because I think even though the Cougars took their head coach, um, they bring back 11 starters to likely keep the air raid offense or the run and shoot offense, I should say. Um, and this comes after Oregon opens the season against North Dakota State, which I don't think Oregon's going to lose, but that's going to be a, a tougher than the usual FCS game. And then they play Ohio State the very next week um, after North Dakota State. So season opener excitement and all that comes with it. And then the big game uh, against Ohio State. And then you play a team like Hawaii – who runs kind of a funky offense and, you know, they, they score a lot of points and they won 10 games last season. Um, and yeah, I understand that, you know, Rolovich is gone and they're going to have to have a new head coach and yada yada. But I just think that's a third straight game that's got, that's got the degree of difficulty you wouldn't expect, uh, a team who's going to be trying to play in the college football playoff to have for, you know, three straight weeks. You would think they'd play, uh, uh, no offense, but a Portland State uh, week one and, you know, a game in which you win 70 to nothing and then play Ohio State. And if you win that, great. If you lose that, well, you played an elite team and then close it out before you go into conference play against a, a San Jose State team, a New Mexico team, you know, some low level of FBS squad that's going to win four or five games and and challenge you, but at the same time not be uh, someone that's going to really push you just before you get into conference play, which is a grind. Well, I, it, the degree of difficulty is like a 15 out of 10 for Oregon in its non-conference. And it's kind of, I mean, all three games played in Eugene, which is, huge. I guess, uh, huge and very positive. Um, but, like, it doesn't have to be a 15 out of 10 is kind of the funny thing. It's like they, they got to pick the schedule, and, and they picked three really, really good teams. I mean, North Dakota State has won, I think, 37 straight games. They've won the... FCS championship three straight years. I mean, that's that's not going to be easy at all. Ohio State is what Ohio State is, and then Hawaii, like you just spoke, I think that's a good pick in terms of a trap game because um, they're really talented and, and, and really tough too. I mean, they beat, I believe, Arizona and Oregon State this last year in non-conference play. And um, it, again, it's like 
no one no one said Oregon had to play these teams, and yet they're they're scheduled to play like three really tough games in non conference play. And so it's one of those things. That if they get out of those three unscathed and move into conference play three and zero somehow, they're going to be absolutely set up by the end you know by mid September you know to be one of the favorites in the college football playoff and be a team that's ranked up there. But if they you know if they stumble a couple times and. North Dakota State is going to be a tough game, breaking in a new quarterback against a, a team that is always at the top of the FCS. Uh, that could be very challenging, and if they stumble once or twice, you know, they get into Pac-12 play, and the season has a totally different complexion. So, um, again, I don't think they've done themselves any favors at the same time. Cristobal has said in the past over and over again that they want to schedule the best, and I think they certainly didn't shy away from that uh, in 2020. It's a tough, tough non-conference schedule. All right, real quick, I'm going to pull a – a fast one on Eric. I'm going to ask him a question about the schedule and the future of scheduling um, under Crystal Ball after the break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, welcome into the Yachts and Audible's podcast. Uh, Matt Premier, Scopo with you like always. Um, real quick, before we dive into basketball... You brought up the fact just before we went to break that um, Oregon is under crystal ball going to schedule games against the best. Seeing as Oregon did that this season, they played Auburn week one. They lost in an, you know a touchdown that was scored in the last 13 seconds of the game or whatever it was. Yeah. And had Oregon not lost that game or had Oregon played a San Jose State and won 56 to 14 in Austin Stadium. Oregon would have been in the college football playoff. And so seeing how that's played out and seeing how Oregon is scheduling the next, you know, six, seven years, games against Ohio State, games uh, against Oklahoma State, Texas Tech, uh, Georgia. I mean, these are big games. Yeah. Are, do, would Boise State's on the schedule? Are you in favor of this knowing now the data, at least a one-year sample size, of what it could mean if you lose? I am so conflicted because, okay, A, I think it, I mean, and I wrote this in a story on the site, this is the best slate of games Autzen Stadium has maybe ever had um, in terms of non-conference and, and conference games. I mean, they're playing basically the four four of the most storied programs in the Pac-12 at home, and then they're facing, it has to be the most difficult non-conference schedule from a home game perspective in particular, that they've ever had. Um, so from a purely entertainment, from a, hey, I'm an Oregon fan, I'd like to watch the game perspective, which, you know, is part of this, I think, for, for, for people listening, then, like, yeah, it's great. Like, this is a really fun schedule for, for fans. To, I mean, 
if you don't have season tickets, this is the year to do it. And if you do have season tickets, like clear out your schedule in September because you want to be at all these games. Um, that part of it is awesome, and I am totally in favor for that. But if I'm looking at it from a, ultimately, I think Oregon is, is trying to compete for a college football playoff berth, this is not ideal because, like we said, like you, we've established, you lose to Auburn this last year, and that takes you out of the college football playoff berth you know, conversation, despite the fact that they won nine out of ten Pac-12 games um, and were pretty dominant in most of them. You know, And the one they lost was on the road late to Arizona State. Um, you know, that very, very, very well could have been a season that they were potentially playing in a, in a college football semifinal rather than playing in the Rose Bowl. Um, it's going to be very. I think this is a very challenging schedule for Oregon if their if their aspirations are to make the college football playoff. Like I said, they've done themselves no favors. So I'm not necessarily. Yeah, I'm not necessarily a fan of of, of the schedule in terms of like if our goal is to be playing in the college football playoff at the end of the season. I think they've handcuffed themselves a great deal by playing this schedule. Now, if this, if the goal is to develop and challenge yourself so you can win a Pac-12 championship, then like, I'm all for it. I think you've set yourself up for that. Regardless of the outcomes of these games, you're going to be very, very challenged and, and ready for Pac-12 play when it starts. And that could pay huge dividends, you know, with an early game against Washington on October 3rd of like Washington. I don't know their schedule off the top of my head, but. Um, I doubt they're playing anywhere near as tough a non-conference schedule as Oregon is, and that could be a thing where Oregon is just more ready for a game like that, and Washington hasn't been challenged very much, and Oregon's able to to win that game in part because of that. But, um, it, you know, big picture, trying to make the college football playoff, uh, this is not an ideal schedule. You know, you see what the big schools in the SEC and the ACC do for the most part from a scheduling perspective. Oregon's certainly not following uh, that train of thinking at all. Um, I mean, they, they go out and rather than scheduling – a bad FCS team or a average to mediocre FCS team, they went out and literally scheduled the best FCS team. And then they went out and scheduled maybe the best or one of the best, you know, FBS teams in Ohio State and then one of the best mid-majors in Hawaii. Um, I mean, it's not an easy schedule. And I'm personally, um, if, if I'm just looking at it from, hey, I want to make the college football playoff, like, yeah, no, I'm not a huge supporter of it because I think it really makes it difficult. I'd like to see – I'd be totally okay with the idea if Oregon was playing these games and everyone was on the same level of non-conference games. SEC and the ACC play four. Um, I think the Big 12 plays three. Yeah. And uh, the Big 10 and the Pac-12, they play three non-conference games as well. I'd be okay with, hey, we're going we're gonna to schedule a game against – Ohio State and we're going to play Hawaii and we're going to play North Dakota State if everyone else had to play three conf- you know three non-conference games uh or or I'd be okay with playing an Ohio State and playing uh Hawaii if it also came with the fact that Oregon was going to play two more non-conference games and they could schedule games against New Mexico and UMass and you know get two games that are automatic wins one of them being late in the year, just you know, mid mid or early November. So you essentially get another bye week um, when your bye week is during the month of October and whatnot. So I'd like to see Oregon do that. Uh, but if if they're on an uneven playing field, I it sucks because from a fan perspective, uh, it takes away you know the big game mentality. But it, I want I want to see Oregon make the college football ch- playoff. I want them to have the, the easiest path to get there. And the easiest path to get there is not playing these games if everyone's not on the same playing field, in my mind. Yeah, and then just one last thought on that is if if you're playing this, even if you're playing 
an uneven, uneven number of non-conference games. I, there should be some sort of accountability for uh, these programs where maybe you have to play. Maybe, maybe you have a set number of games. If, if you're only if you're playing a different number, but you have to play one Power Five opponent if you're if you're in a Power Five conference, you know, from another conference. So if you're in the in the SEC, you have to play one Big Twelve, ACC, Pac-12, Big Ten team, and, and vice versa for all those schools. And then you have to play one. Uh, non-Power 5 FBS team. So Hawaii is that for Oregon. Then you have to play one FCS thing. So everybody's at least on an even playing field, but that's not really what happens. And, um, and, and, and that's part of what's unfortunate is the schedules are so uneven right now. And it's a tough spot for the committee because you look at Oregon last year and, and maybe they were as deserving as anybody else based upon what happened after, um, non-conference play in early September. But, they have that game against Auburn on their schedule, and that holds them back. So it, it's a tough thing to be a part of, especially when it's it's hard to coordinate all this. But it does feel like, from a scheduling perspective, you never look up and feel like it's all even. But like we said earlier, Oregon uh, is in this situation because they chose to be. So um, I think again, kudos to the staff and the program and the athletic department for scheduling really, really challenging non-conference games. We'll see how it plays out. But from a Big picture, you want to play in the college football playoff. Um, this is not an easy schedule and, and not one that makes it uh, super easy to accomplish that goal, I don't think. All right, now let's shift our gears to some basketball real quick because Oregon went up to the Washington schools, and I think if you if you said, hey, Oregon's going to get split on the road against the Washington schools, I think most fans, my, you know, myself, yourself, everyone would basically be like, yeah, that's – Probable, it makes sense. Like you know, they're playing some you know a really good team and uh, in Washington and Washington State's the game that they should win. And yeah, I I, I have no problem with that one on one. Sure, I I can believe that. And Oregon did go one and one, but it's how they did it was it's kind of head scratching. Uh, we talked about the loss at Washington State um, on Friday's show, but then on Saturday needing a split with a margin of error that was very, very slim. Um, the Ducks somehow found a way in which, like, Eric, I don't know, I think you were, I, I don't know if you were watching the game or not, but if you were aware, Oregon was on track to shoot their worst shooting percentage uh, in a game as a team since, like, the 2012 season when Oregon shot 27.8%. Like, from the field. I mean, there was a point in the in the second half where they missed 13 straight shots to start second half play against the Huskies. Um, Dan Altman said post game that what this was their real first opportunity at playing a team with that that's full zone. And Washington, it, it, it's crazy to think because we we talked so much last year about how. That Washington team was very good defensively with all those seniors and Mighty Steibel as the head of the snake. Well, this year's Washington defense is basically as good, if not better, than the Washington team last year who was so good defensively. I mean, Washington's defense is 21st in the country in Ken Palm and defensive uh, efficiency. Um, last year's group, uh, for the Huskies was 18th. So literally like guys are, new guys are in, but the defense is still as good as, as it could be. And yet Oregon somehow, it took them about 30 minutes, but in that final 10 minutes of regulation, 
Um, they figured it out, and Peyton Pritchard did some Peyton Pritchard things, hitting some three-pointers from beyond Seattle. Uh, and they walk out of uh, Alaska Airlines Arena with a 64-61 win in overtime, uh, a game in which Pritchard scored 22 points, and freshman Chandler Lawson had his first double-double, 16 points, 12 rebounds. He also had three assists. I think all three of his assists uh, came on huge baskets, two being dunks to C.J. Walker, uh, Ali Oops, and then a third coming off an offensive rebound kick out to Peyton Pritchard for one of Pritchard's six made three-pointers. Um, and, and the game was won by those two guys. The offense rolled from Pritchard, got the ball to Lawson at the top of the key, who then got it back to Pritchard, screened for him, and set him up uh, for that step-back three-pointer uh, for the win in overtime. Just an overall ugly game that all of a sudden turned into one hell of a win for this Oregon basketball team. Peyton Pritchard's ability to make big shots, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, Dylan Brooks is the only player I can think of in the last 10 years or so, maybe maybe Joe Young as well, who, who just seems like when the moment gets big, he's just ready for it and seems to always make the big shots. And I know there have been games where he, he has struggled in that regard during his career, but this year in particular, it just seems like he's dialed in and ready. And the, the degree of difficulty on those three-point shots he made – and, and I went through and, and just watched all the three-point highlights afterwards. He made six of them. Like, none of them were, like, even remotely easy. I mean, no. they, like, they were, and, and a lot of them, like, I think four of the six were probably from at least 30 feet. Uh, I mean, they were in some, some of the, I mean, you, the game winner was certainly long, but I don't even think that was his second or third longest three of the game. I mean, the, the first shot of the game that he made was from, the W on the floor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it, and it was kind of like, okay, I guess this is what we're doing. And and, and Washington does play it in, in a zone that extends, that that maybe allows you if you want to take a long three that, that they're going to give it to you. And clearly, he was ready for that. And um, but just his development as a, a player, like Oregon does not win this game or have any chance of winning this game without him playing at at this level. And I was thinking about this, and I'm curious on your insight, but. It just seems like having a senior who's had this kind of experience is such a rarity these days in college basketball. A guy who's played in, you know, Final Four games and Sweet 16 games and won conference championships and, and you know, was obviously as a high school player, a, I think a four-time four state champion at Westland. It just feels like having a player like Peyton Pritchard, there are just not a lot of them out there anymore that play four years at a school that are very good players, you know, start all four years basically. Um I just think he's such a weapon, and Washington didn't have an answer for it. Washington's answer for it is what a lot of big schools right now have, which is a couple of young freshmen that are very talented, that have high NBA draft stock. Um, you know, and, and we should mention that, uh, man, Isaiah Stewart, 25 and 19 with five blocks. Oregon never really had an answer for him until kind of the end of the game. But um, it just seems like that is such a – a privilege and and really a rarity these days that Oregon has, and a guy like Pritchard is a four-year starter and who's capable of scoring at that level. I just look at it and think like that's such a game changer right now. Yeah, I mean, if, if we want to talk like who is the most talented player in the Pac-12, it's Isaiah Stewart. But his teams aren't winning, um, and Peyton Pritchard's are, and right. that's going to be the difference. Look, I I have a very hard time. Um, Rewarding, you know, player of the year type accolades, uh, to, to guys or girls or whatever for teams that don't win. Like you could be the best player in the league, but if your team doesn't win, like, yeah, it's great. 
from an individual level, but as a team, you didn't have that big of an impact uh, on the game and or as on the season, I should say. And Isaiah Stewart is having, I think, I think he's the best player in the conference. And yet the Huskies though are two and four in conference play. They're yeah. twelve and seven. Peyton Pritchard means the most for the Oregon basketball team because look at what he's done. I mean, his his game winning shots against Washington. He scored thirteen straight. Uh, fifteen of I think I think fifteen of seventeen against Seton Hall against Michigan. Excuse me. Right. In the final moments of that game to win thirteen straight late to win that game. Uh, he went toe to toe with Miles Powell, uh, of Seton Hall, who's a national player of the year. Uh, he made some big clutch plays for Oregon down the stretch against Arizona and Arizona State. Um, both those games being, you know, wins, did the same thing against Utah in the conference. Uh, and I, I think his growth is pretty cool to watch. And this is a sign of, this is why you don't leave. This is why right. you don't go pro at the first chance. This is why you don't, transfer if you don't you know if your first year doesn't go exactly the way it, it's gone because he has gotten better every single season and his sophomore year he was asked hey you need to be the guy you need you need to cover up for everybody and while he had good numbers I don't think he had kind of appreciated and developed the skill set of I need to be good but I also need to make sure that my team is good as well and the wins didn't translate, and the, the, the Ducks didn't make the NCAA tournament. And then last year, you know, it was going that direction again. And then in the second half of the season, things figured it out. Peyton Pritchard figured it out, and he went down and, and had just an unreal run in the fa- you know final 12 games of the regular season into the NCAA tournament. He was the most outstanding player of the Pac-12 tournament. He was the team's best player, and it's carried over to this season where – He's having to, you know, he's kind of fully embraced and figured out how to be the lead guy, get his, and yet get his teammates their looks and and get them going. And he's having career numbers. I think he's by far the runaway favorite right now for Pac-12 Player of the Year. Uh, Oregon's going to have to stumble a couple times for that to happen. And I think he's probably right now the front runner um, for the National Player of the Year. I mean, he's playing at an All-American level. Uh, and it's, it's pretty cool to watch. You know, I asked, um, and those listening may not be familiar, but they may be Bob Clark. He was the beat writer for, uh, Oregon men's basketball for like 25 years for the registered guard. He was covering the women's game on Sunday and we were talking about Peyton Pritchard. And I said, if Pritchard were to be national player of the year this year, and let's say Oregon goes to the elite eight, where would he rank amongst players that, that, that Bob Clark had kind of been familiar with? And he thought about it for a second and said, I had to think about that, but he might be, he might be at the very top of players yeah. that, 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 you know, just from the Oregon perspective, you know, the program perspective. And that's kind of the conversation that we might actually have to start having here if, 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 if this is the way the season plays out. If he's Pac-12 Player of the Year, National Player of the Year, and Oregon runs deep into the tournament, like his four-year run, and, and, and we've said this before, we're not saying he's the best individual basketball player to come through Oregon. I think there's a, probably a handful of guys who are going to be better pros than what Peyton Pritchard projects as. But in terms of just the success of his career – Pritchard might go down as like the best individual career player in program history. I mean, he's, I'm, I was just looking at his, you know, scoring totals. He's going to get really close to 2000. For I was just going to bring that he's up. He's going to get there, very, very close. Yeah. One player, Ron Lee has, um, 2000 points in his career. I think it's 2000, like 83. 
and I projected I, – I did this yesterday. It's, it's really funny that you brought that up because I, I I was just curious of how close he could get to, to 2,000, and I said let's, let's just assume Oregon plays 15 more games – yeah. Uh, that that closes out the regular season. That plays one game in the in the Pac-12 tournament, and one game in some kind of postseason tournament, assuming the NCAA tournament. Um, and that's how you get to 15. And if he just averages what he averages this year, 19.1 points, he's going to be about 100 points away from getting into 2,000 and having a chance to to surpass Ron Lee for the program's all-time leading uh, scoring record. And I, I think it's safe to say that. They're probably going to play more than one game in the Pac-12 tournament. They're probably going to play more than one game in the NCAA tournament. And if they make any kind of run in both of those, uh, he's going to have a legit chance and probably will become the school's all-time leading scorer, barring some kind of injury or, or some kind of just regression away from his average because it's trending that direction. Yeah, I'm just trying to right now pull up the inner career. Yeah, Ron Lee, 2085 is, is, and he is the only one, like you said, over 2000. Luke Jackson second in 1970. Um, and I was actually, it's funny, we were both doing the same thing last night because I was up trying to figure out the math in that too. And, and I think our, our math kind of aligns in terms of like if Oregon makes a run and he continues to produce at this level or maybe he takes his game up a, a, a notch. I wouldn't be surprised right. at either. Um, and maybe he has another gear. Like he could be the all-time leading scorer and you see where he's, ranking in terms of other categories, in terms of being probably going to be the winningest player in program history. I think that's pretty much all locked up. Um, yeah, I mean, his career is going to stand up against anybody in program history. And that's, I think, a testament to his hard work, but also a testament to how this program has um, evolved over the last decade where, you know, Oregon can be playing for these, not only for Pac-12 championships, which were a rarity for a really long time here, um, but also for potential Final Four, Elite Eight kind of seasons, which were, you know, basically never happened. At least I remember when I was uh, in middle school, I think Oregon made the Elite Eight that year with, with Ridenauer and Jackson. And I was, it was like, a, it never happened before, basically. And it was a huge, huge thing. And now that's sort of the expectation going into some of these seasons. So um, a huge career for him. Uh, one, one second, I, I just another thing. I just, I figured we should talk a little bit about Chandler Lawson, Matt. Um, how does his play in that game impact the way you perceive the front court going forward? Because um, that was kind of – he had a couple of other games. I was looking at the numbers. I think he had 8-8 eight and eight against Utah and 8-8 eight and eight another time in non-conference play. Um, so he had a couple games where he'd been a positive force. And I know sometimes the stats aren't everything, and you've watched them a little bit more than I had. But 16-12 and 12 and going in, I, I did watch the, the, the rest of the game. I watched a recap of it. He was pivotal in terms of finishing baskets around the basket, getting in a high post and initiating offense, making good decisions with it. Um, is, was this just a thing where Washington plays a zone and he was the most adept player in the high post to kind of get offense initiated? Or do you think this is a thing that will be a long-term deal here where, where maybe we see Chandler Lawson maybe not start, but he's going to be a guy who's playing crunch time for Oregon going forward? I think it can be both, and that seems like maybe a cop-out, but I think it's both because, look, I, I said this during the middle of, of the game or early on in the second half. I can't remember when it was, but I tweeted out that Oregon really misses a guy like Paul White. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw that. that and you, you, you realize some guys maybe aren't the most talented player or the most athletic guy, but just what they kind of bring, the intangibles to your team, really – amplifies their importance and Paul White the last two seasons 
when he played strictly at power forward, he was a very good passer. He was a very good shooter. Uh, and he was a guy that had the hands to, you know, the catch lobs and whatnot. And he was just a really, he had like guard like skills at six nine. Um, and you could rely on him against that Husky zone to kind of feed everything through him. I mean, Dylan Brooks was the same way. I mean, that's why Washington could not guard Dylan Brooks because he literally just was a zone buster. Um, whether it was Washington zone or whoever, I mean, teams would, would put a zone out of Oregon and Dana would just go, all right, Brooks, go to the, go to the free throw line and just kind of bounce around there and, you know, mid range game. Um, Elgin Cook was the same way as well. And this year's team, you know, they don't really necessarily have a guy that's a power forward. That's a, you know, consistent elbow, uh, jump shooter. Um, you know, mid-range jump shot guy, uh, and lot, and none of them are also guys that possess a ton of guard skills. And yet we saw that start to develop with Lawson. I mean, you look at, he had three assists in that game. He's had a game in which this year he had five assists, uh, up at, up at Colorado. Um, he's had another game where he had three assists against Alabama State. Uh, against Michigan, he had one assist, six rebounds. He's got a lot of games where he's got two assists. Um, I think they figured out that, hey, Lawson actually has the playmaking abilities that we, that we need at the top of that zone to throw him out there and kind of run everything through him. Now, I want to say, remind people, the, 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 the shot that Pritchard hit to win the game, the, their original play call was to get Chandler Lawson the basketball at the free throw line. Yeah. And have him make a play, whether that was cutting, uh, passing to a cutting Peyton Pritchard on the back door, going towards the hoop for a jump shot, or running pick and roll with Peyton Pritchard, which is what they ended up doing. Pritchard said the back door cut wasn't open. Lawson said that he didn't want to go too in, too far down into the zone because he feared of getting, uh, blocked from behind. And so he did the pick and roll with Peyton Pritchard and that he trusted Pritchard to make the shot if he gave him a good pick and roll. Um, that's what the play that happened. But Oregon chose to run the offense through Chandler Lawson. And now the, the key here is that they were asking Lawson to set somebody else up essentially for the basket. It was get Pritchard the ball, maybe throw that lob uh, that they've thrown to CJ Walker a couple times. But they figured out that he was the guy that was capable of making those passes uh, at the top of the zone. CJ Walker was the beneficiary of a couple of them for dunks. I believe they found Juicin for a dunk via, um, you know, some kind of a pass from Lawson. Um, moving forward, I think Lawson's going to play more. Is he going to warrant starting uh, minutes? I don't know. Um, I do think they've discovered that, look, you need some kind of trio of a rotation of Shakur Justin, Chandler Lawson, and CJ Walker, and then you kind of just fill in the gaps with Invali Dante and Francis Okoro because Okoro's offense is, has regressed. Dante's defense is not good. Um, and he has, while he has solid offensive moves, I, I don't think he, it covers up the mistakes he's making defensively. And you've got three athletic big guys and, and Justin Walker and Lawson. And I would roll with those three. And then, like I said, fill in the gaps with a and Dante until something else emerges that demands that those guys play a ton of minutes. And then just one last thought on Dante. 
an injury kept him out for most of the game, correct? Do we have any idea on the severity there? Yeah, he said knee, a twisted knee um, in Ooh. the first half, late, late in the second half, late in, in that half. Um, he was bouncing around and seemed to be fine. Dan Altman said that it was a precautionary. They didn't want to, you know, throw him out there. Uh, you know, I think probably because, hey, look, we're getting destroyed right now. He's not helping defensively. He is complaining of some kind of a pain. What's the value of throwing him out there? And then, you know, because of the score and, and situation, um, and thinking long term, hey, it's just one game. This guy could be a difference maker in four or five games down the road, but we have to keep him healthy. And then when Oregon made a run, it was kind of like, well, I don't want to put him in there because he hasn't played for a while. Uh, and on top of that, why am I pulling somebody off the floor that's producing well for a guy that hadn't produced when he was in the game earlier? So I don't think it's anything too serious. Maybe he misses the USC game. I highly doubt that. Uh, but he did have a, a twisted knee. Never like hearing me with a big guy, but it, it doesn't sound like it's too serious. That's good. Yeah, yeah. So, all right, that's going to do it for us here um, on the Odds and Audibles podcast. Stick with us for Wednesday's mailbag. Submit your questions now to Eric Scopel uh, on Twitter. Uh, and then on Friday, we'll have a full full breakdown. We promise a full breakdown, our thoughts, trap games, uh, ranking the importance of the games, you know, early predictions on the games for the 2020 football season. So for Eric Scopel, myself, Matt Bram, thank you for listening to the Odds and Audibles podcast. Adios, amigos.